Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. This episode of History of Jackson was sponsored by the Bean Around Coffee. The Bean Around Coffee is based in Peterborough and they sell and make some amazing coffee. You can head to their website to buy some coffee beans or some coffee grounds. Now they make some fantastic coffee and it is my favourite coffee in the country. And for you want to grab yourself some coffee, head to www.thebeanaround.com and use the discount code HWJ and the bear. 10 for 10 percent off all your purchases i'll leave the discount code and the website in the description below hi guys welcome to the history of jackson podcast presented by past and present media today we are talking to historian and author paul ballard white how are we doing paul ah uh, thank you jackson yes I'm, I'm well thank you absolutely fine and this sunny this morning yes <laughs> thank you well it's great to have you on the podcast you know i've really enjoyed uh your book here Lucky Hitler's big mistakes. Uh, firstly, yes. yeah. Thank That's you, Penn and Sword, for sending me a copy. So I wanted to ask you, Paul. You know, this is a this is a very interesting topic, and it's a it's a perspective of looking at Hitler that not a lot of historians have looked at before. You know, yes. Where, where what, what was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, I think really from <clears throat> um, about fifteen years of teaching this subject is probably where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah covered it so in so much detail uh, that, and I was teaching the students about it that I found myself actually saying to them, he was very lucky here, he was very lucky there. It accumulated in my mind. I said it quite a lot on a lot of different occasions. And um, that's, that's really how it came about. It just struck me that uh, over a, a long period of time, Adolf Hitler, things that happened to him but sheer luck. Uh, we imagine that because he was a, a became the leader, that he created everything. But in actual fact, most of the events that surrounded him had nothing to do with him. But they played into his into his uh, career, so to speak, um, and his build up of popularity. Things happened that he had nothing to do with. So you know that's that's luck, and of course that's the really the first. Part of the book, half of the book, is based on luck. We can talk a bit more about luck in a minute, right? So, when we're talking about luck and Hitler and him, you know, a lot of things being out of his control, did Hitler himself actually believe in the, the concept of luck? Well, it, that is actually a good question because he, in a matter of translation from German, in a way, because he didn't really use the word directly translated as luck. What he did quite a lot, was the word providence. Uh, now, by any account, providence is chance. It is, it is a form of luck. It's a bit more spiritual, and I think he possibly thought himself to be um, a, a messiah visitor uh, to planet Earth. And so, and so events that happened for him were meant to happen because it was him. So that's providence. But So although he didn't say luck himself, uh, he he did use it. Uh, for example, he said, um, he said here, for example, uh, if providence, by I think by that he meant luck, if providence had not guided me, I would never have founded successful paths. And he also said later on, he said that I go the way providence dictates with the assurance of a sleepover. So he obviously was fully aware things were happening to him uh, that 
what exactly in his control. Uh, it's it's really interesting, you know, seeing those Hitler's use of the word providence and how he he's come to recognise uh, the role that providence is playing within his own life. Now, within within your book, you you chart <laughs> Hitler's life um, and and the the role of luck or providence and mistakes in his life. Uh, and one crucial moment of that for Hitler uh, was his his joining up of the Nazi Party. So where did Hitler's relationship with the party begin? Well, really, it began immediately after the end of the First World War, uh, because Germany was uh, obviously defeated in 1918, um, and the whole country was in turmoil. Uh, the government was not settled. It didn't, wasn't powerful. Uh, and people were on the streets, uh, forming one group after another, left wing, right wing, with all sorts of ideas. Um, and actually, uh, he had been in the First World War. We'll back to talk about that in a minute. But when he came out, uh, he was immediately recruited um, by a, a, an army officer responsible for looking into the sorts of um, sorts of problems that were going on in the streets. And he, he just simply recruited as a spy. And his job was to go around the beer halls of Munich um, and identify troublemakers, you might say. And of course, he, he in one of the places he went to, the German Workers' Party, uh, he was taken by what their ideas were. And he stood up and <laughs> said his piece. Um, and lo and behold, everybody shocked and paid attention, um, suddenly said, who's this guy who talk so well? Uh, he joined that party after a short time he became the leader of that party, and he changed the name to the, what we know as the Nazi party. So that's how he became involved. Of course, it was natural. All the things that we're talking about were what he believed were, were his personal ideal, was his personal ideology. It's, it's really quite interesting to see that, that relationship grow from him just being there to observe <laughs> and, and highlight people into him growing that party and centering around himself. Now, in 1923, we have a we have a crucial moment for both Hitler and the party. Uh, and it was their ill-fated attempt to seize power uh, with the Munich Beer Hall Putsch. Uh, would you be able to you know, unpack what this movement was and, and the effect that it had on Hitler and the Nazi party? Yes, I mean, this was really, remember after four or five years of growth of the party under his leadership, because he took over as leader fairly, fairly quickly. And as I said, there was plenty of competition. Uh, the main competition on the streets uh, was the Communist Party and left-wing parties. Um, and, and he had built up, he had built up um, a large following. His group has now become one of the biggest, one of the most popular, best attended. More than that, uh, they had recruited many ex-soldiers and they had formed this paramilitary uh, protection group, uh, which we know as the Brown Shots, uh, the SA, in other words. Um, and so it, it had already, after four or five years, become a lot, very large and very significant um, power, albeit a sort of street power at this stage. But the year before, Hitler heard about a chap in Italy called Mussolini. He was in, he, he couldn't believe it. He said, what, 
Mussolini just gathered his, his followers, marched in the government and took over? Yes, he did. So Hitler thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And basically that's what happened. So one day uh, he and his, his large group of thousands uh, stormed into a, a public meeting. Um, he stormed in, pulled out his gun, fired a shot into the, into the ceiling. Every, everybody stopped, as you can imagine. Um, and he declared that there was, there was no uh, revolution. Uh, and someone there, a chap, his name was Professor Muller, actually. And he actually recorded the event. And I just think it's worth noting what he said. He said, when Hitler spoke, it was a rhetorical masterpiece that totally transformed the audience. Now, when you think about the circumstances, uh, Hitler must have had some amazing X factor uh, in his, his ability, his oratory powers, because if you, were, if you imagined yourself in that situation, you wouldn't be thinking of to be impressed by someone's speech skills, but he was. And so anyway, from there, uh, it was decided that they would take on the Munich government. And several thousand of the Hemini's followers, several thousand of them decided to march on the city hall. Uh, now, this is where a, a very, very good example of, of luck. It couldn't be anything else, could it? Because he was on the front, in the middle. Uh, on one side, one of his colleagues, Richter, Richter on the other side, was... Um, Boring. When they, came, uh, they were confronted by the, the local police, uh, police force, armed police force, who opened fire, Richter on his left-hand side dropped dead. Boring on his right-hand side was shot in the leg. Fifteen other people were shot dead, but Hitler, nothing. Okay, so that was, that, that, that's pretty remarkable luck. That was, but that was a continuation uh, of, quickly refer back to it, to, to the first war. This is luck. This business of luck uh, is always a question of what really, what really is luck. Uh, and to be honest, because I was going to write this book um, based on, half of it anyway, based on luck, I, I thought, just do we have an interpretation of luck? And I did actually find one in uh, the dictionary, of course. It says that luck is success that seems to happen by chance. It's the arbitrary distribution of events or outcomes. Sounds like a good definition, a very clear definition. And if we think about it for a moment, if I can, just refer back through history, it also struck me that, history, that luck had played such a large part in many big moments in history. I haven't got time to go into the full detail, but just a quick reminder, even in the great famous day of 1066, you know, William the Conqueror, we think of him as the great, incredibly great soldier. Actually, he, was, he, was, he only conquered by luck because King Harold, who had a big army waiting for him, was had to march up north to, uh, to defend off the Vikings. Half his army was, 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 was killed off. And by the time he came back, um, William had already landed on the beach. Harold wasn't really in a position to defend him. So that was luck. Even in the great Spanish Armada, yeah, we tend to think Francis Drake, yes, he was a great sailor, no doubt about it. But it wasn't. That's not how the Spanish 
armada was defeated. It was defeated by bad weather. A storm brewed up, but all sailing ships were scattered and lost. And that was pure luck. Okay, so you, you, you get my point. And, and, and it also, even in politics, recently, more fairly recently, um, one Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, famously, famously says that um, it really is only a matter of defence, dear boy. That's what determines for a Prime Minister. And if you think of today, a recent defence, yes, you could say, <laughs> you could say luck played its part in recent Prime Minister's careers, I think. So it, 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 I, I just wanted to really throw open this idea that, that uh, I'm quite prepared to, to discuss what luck really is, but I think these are the kind of examples that I'm, I'm referring to when I say that Hitler uh, was extremely yeah, I, I can I can certainly see it within you know some of these events that Luck's playing a massive role in Hitler's successes uh, and his ability to capitalize on them uh, and capitalize yeah. on situations as well. Uh, and and looking at the next big situation that hits Germany mm, uh, and, yeah. and particularly the world in, in 1929, uh, Hitler is able to capitalize on the wall street crash uh you know massive financial implications not only for america but the rest of the world due to uh, M- uh america's financial power in the post world war 1 pe- uh, post world war 1 period so what effect does this wall street crash have on germany and and how is hitler able to capitalize on it well it it, it did have i i i actually Make the argument that this was the cause of the of of, of the of his rise to power, and, and therefore, cause of the, the cause of the war, uh, because it was all happening in America, center of world finance, of course, um, and it was became the, the financial crisis we've seen them recently as well, uh, and and it was a collapse of economies. Now this is only about uh, 10, 11 years after the end of the First World War, Germany, uh, which had obviously suffered economically uh, after the First World War, uh, had been in, in poverty, really. And that was one reason why Hitler's party was, was proving very popular um, during those years. Um, and he had, he had built up um, his support, yes, and, but the communists on the other side, had built up their support too. The difference that this made was that Hitler was able to, the effect in Germany, first of all, was that people who were just beginning to recover from the, from the effects of the end of the First World, just beginning to recover, suddenly it was this massive slump. And so people, again, were faced, confronted in an instant, a weakened economy, with unemployment which soared up to more than three million people. And so they looked around very quickly for answers. And I would have often debated with people about this. But do you know, um, I think it was only natural human reaction. If you are in extreme poverty, if things have completely collapsed around you, you will look around for a quick answer, for a clear answer. a simple answer. This is what Hitler offered people. 
the first thing he did, and I think this is what we would look for again, it's a point, uh, to blame. What's, who's to blame? For Hitler, that was simple. He was able to identify who was to blame. It, was, it wasn't the American government, the national economics. This was a great opportunity for him to point the finger at what he had already been saying was, was one of Germany's big problems. And, and that uh, was the weak government that had surrendered at the end of the First War, that had created this German feeling of shame, of defeat. Um, and who were these people who had done that? Well, they were Jews. The Jews were in the government, were part of the government, were all Bolsheviks as far as he was concerned. And he said it's quite, quite simple. That's why Germany is in the mess it's in at the moment. And not only that, but the only people that have prospered since the end of the war are the Jews. So it was easy for him to target these two groups of Jews and the Bolsheviks. Um, and so the, for those reasons then, uh, all of his arguments that had, he had been making reinforced by this economic collapse. It was an ideal moment for him, but it was entirely nothing to do with him that did happen. So that's, that, that was definitely... And like you said there, and we previously touched on his oracy skills, to be able to clearly communicate to the people exactly what they <laughs> want to hear uh, allows, as you, as you just mentioned, for him to capitalise that. And as we've just been talking about, you know, this starts the process of Hitler's rise to power, Germany's collapse into a dictatorship, um, and then there were two events which really kind of finalised this collapse, which is the Reichstag fire and the death of President Hindenburg. And this kind of allows Hitler to become a very powerful figure within Germany. And how does he set about using this newfound power in 1934? Well, the first thing that happened, this popularity, as I just said, honestly, um, as a result of Wall Street crash, and from that, he then, um, he had been, by the way, in prison, but uh, he had been in prison. And during that time in prison, he had uh, written, or he had someone write for him, in fact, it was Hess, Rudolf Hess, wrote down his thoughts. Uh, and they were formed into a famous book called Mein Kampf. Uh, that was really important because, in a sense, that was his manifesto uh, written for all to see. And... A lot of people bought this book. In fact, he became very rich uh, from the sales of, of that book. But it was, it was quite clear in it uh, which direction he was going in. Um, but more importantly, perhaps, was that Hess had persuaded Hitler that storming uh, town halls in Munich wasn't going to get him the power he wanted. The only way to power was through the ballot box. Which, of course, is slightly ironic, but, but anyway, that's, he adopted that, um, took that on, and, and decided after, after least from prison, that that was what he was going to do. Um, and they were rep being represented at general elections. And so, the, again, the effect of the, um, of, of the Wall Street crash, there's a huge increase in popularity of the Nazi party. So people actually were going into the ballot box and voting 
for Nazi Party in large numbers. So large, in fact, that um, by 1933, uh, they were the largest party in the Reichstag, the Reichstag, the centre of government. And so, as the leader of the largest party, which is in a very strong position, um, although many tried to resist letting him be Chancellor of all Germany, he, one, of his, one of his attributes was his very stubborn act. Argue, arguer, sorry. Uh, and he, he never took no for a, an answer. He never listened to other people's point of view anyway. That was part of his, <laughs> might say, part of his great qualities. Um, it's one way of doing it. One way to defeat an argument is to ignore it. See, that's what he did. Um, so anyway, uh, the president, Hindenburg, um, was very cautious. He was 84 very cautious of this right-wing fascist Hitler, Adolf Hitler, uh, taking over as chancellor. But he was he was kind of old, oh, more or less, uh, had left a little chance. And, and Hitler in 1933, Hitler became chancellor of, of Germany. Um, that was astonishing. The rise to success from a from a from a, a cultural dynamite artist um, as he was for the war to this now. Chancellor of Germany. Uh, and of course, yeah, yes, the, the, then you were asking about what happened next. Well, it incredible luck, this, because two things happened. Jim, once he became Chancellor in 1933, two events happened which were quite out of his control, but were amazing. And, and it really seals this, this power. The first was that the Within a few weeks of him becoming Chancellor, the Reichstag Parliament uh, was set on fire. Um, it was a massive fire, but they were really coming yeah. place out. It really was a good job. Uh, but somebody was caught very quickly on site. And lo and behold, it was a communist activist. Well, that was absolutely perfect as far as Hitler was concerned. Uh, and because he was able to, he was held up in public. There we are, said Hitler. There's your enemy, right at our door, burning down your own government. So, politically, it was perfect. The poor chap, uh, it was a Dutch, it was a poor young fella, was executed, executed by guillotine. Now, uh, you know, that brings uh, back to French Revolution, doesn't it? Like, uh, that's, that, that was an indication of the style of the uh, the style of punishments that the Nazis were, were likely to be dishing out. So anyway, so he, he was executed. Um, communists actually suffered very badly from it because the president was persuaded, again by Hitler, uh, that the Communist Party should be banned. Now, terrific. The president obviously was in a corner. He, he could hardly argue with that. He banned communist parties. So that meant there were no communists in, in Reichstag. So the Nazis had total control of, of, of Reichstag. Um, and this gave them the opportunity to pass what's called the Enabling Act. Now, the Enabling Act was quite simply giving Hitler uh, total power. He, he could make law. Reichstag didn't even have to. That's what the Enabling the Enabling Act did. So there, his power is moving up the way very quickly here. 
And to make it total, the next event, he had definitely nothing to do with him. Was good old president, Hindenburg, good old Hindenburg, 84 years old. He died very conveniently, but there was no, there was no mischief about it. He died very conveniently. The Nazi party, having full control, very quickly tidied the whole thing up and said Hitler should not only be chancellor, but should also be president. Uh, so there we are, uh, a series of events, none of which were acting created by Hitler, all of which benefited to the point that he was now de facto dictator of Germany. And there are two really key events that really show Hitler and the Nazi party's skill at being able to uh, capitalise off the events, but also make sure that they get a tangible benefit from them, uh, such as you said, the, the banning of the Communist Party and the combination of the, the office of the Chancellery and the Presidency to make that title of the Fuhrer. Now, within within your book, you, you come across a really interesting aspect of Hitler's personal and political life that isn't often touched upon in popular historical discourse. And that is Hitler's sex life. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Now, yes. I, I found this chapter uh, particularly fascinating because I hadn't I hadn't heard of much of this within, no. within no. my reading. So how did Hitler uh, and you and you mentioned with alongside this chapter, the political scandals that come along with sex life with popular uh politicians such as Bill Clinton. Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah. How how was Hitler able to escape any type of political scandal with his so-called unusual uh sex life? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. I, I think it is absolutely fascinating. And funny enough, it, it you're right. It's um it's hardly ever touched upon or or, or but there, there is a lot to it. And it is really, really important element because w when we again just a quick reflection on, on history as you said president clinton the u.s president clinton is a very good example of someone being brought down because of a sex scandal now of course he certainly wasn't the only one you can look back as far as looking back in history as far back as caligula uh, you know who who was murdered, murdered actually uh, because of his Sexual perversions and and um, uh, people like uh, in our recent history, and uh, you, you might remember um, uh, what was called the Profumo affair, uh, when our defence, the British defence secretary, uh, was having an affair with a prostitute, Justin Keeler, who was also having an affair with a Russian diplomat. Um, now. That brought down the whole government. The whole, the whole conservative government was brought down to that. And, and slightly more recently, the liberal leader, there was a liberal leader called Jeremy Thorpe, who looked like he was going to revive the, the liberal party's fortunes. He thought so anyway. Um, but he uh, was seen to be involved in some attempted murder of a homosexual lover. Now, all of these things are just examples, but it, but if if sexual scandal is touched on with a leader, it seems to me it's the end. You know, there's, there's no there's no going back. The public have got no sympathy 
maybe like to read about it. They don't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they don't. They, they don't have any uh, sympathy for them. Now, Hitler. Then you might think this rather funny-looking man. Uh, you wouldn't imagine. Somewhere or another, he looked almost asexual, right? and some people thought he was. Uh, a lot of people also thought he was homosexual. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, there were a few reports that one American journalist wrote very clearly. He said that Hitler was very ladylike, dainty little steps. Uh, okay, take that as you like. Um, but others did often say that his mannerisms were quite effeminate. So. And of course, he, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't seen with women. Uh, he's always on his, seen on his own. He was never, it was never the same woman or any woman very often near him. But Hitler was very conscious, actually, nevertheless. He was conscious of this, this feminine sort of uh, image. And uh, you can see even in the kind of uh, he looks very, he looks very macho. He made sure that he, when he was photographed, nearly always he's wearing uh, uniform, leather belts, uh, long leather boots, um, and nearly always he carried a, a, a whip, a bullwhip, uh, which he would crack against his, his leather boots uh, when he was talking to make him sound more, more macho. He called when he met females. Introduced himself as Herr Wolf, so he, he was he was clearly very 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 aware of this. But and this was the thing, he wasn't certainly wasn't sexual. Not to fact, he was a sexual predator, um, and he favoured uh, teenage juvenile teenagers girls, uh, and as it turned out. Um, his behaviour when he did have these relationships. There are quite a few mentioned in the book. Um, uh, he had quite a few with teenage girls. Um, he very quickly turned them into what today to be sort of sadomasochist relationship. And I think that that is the big shock factor uh, that, you, that, you're, that you're alluding to there. I don't think that was, that's generally considered that it, that he was indeed, without any doubt. And we have quite a lot of evidence to that. For example, um, he had a long relationship with his niece, well, his niece, um, who he had met in, well, he knew her, obviously, being his half-niece, uh, his half-sister's daughter. But she had come in to visit him in prison, uh, aged about 14, 15. He was taken very much with her. And Quite some time afterwards, he decided that um, his sister could come and work for him. He had a house now in Bergen's garden, uh, that he would, his sister could come and work for him as housekeeper. <clears throat> but his ulterior motive was that she would bring along her daughter, who was now 70. Um, and sure enough, it didn't take long uh, that Hitler. Um, had her living next door to him in his flat, <clears throat> and they became they became lovers. But she wrote uh, to her to her friend, and this is this is one of the evidence of power. She said, "This is her words, chilling words." She says, "You'd never believe the things that he makes me do. 
Okay. So we can leave it at that as far as his, his, his relationship. Her name was Kelly. But he went on and he had, uh, in, uh, just in the book, I, I, I list five different females that he had very questionable relationships. One of them was even a Jewish princess. Now, if you can imagine if any of this, if any of, of these, I'm time to go through them all, but if any of these scandals had become public, it would have completely ruined this image that Hitler had built up of, of a messiah, of a savior, of a superhuman, um, a man who is a man for himself. And so it, it could have, it could have, would have brought him down. I think you asked how he managed to avoid that. Well, that question uh, can probably be summed up in one word, Gestapo. And so anybody that knew about Hitler's behaviour uh, was simply kept out of it. You know, the media, if they knew, wouldn't dare say anything. That's that's how it's the difference between. Hitler's sexual scandals and everybody else's sexual scandals was that it was a totalitarian fascist state where nobody had any free speech. And that and that's a that's a huge part of a lot of totalitarian regimes, as you <clears> just <throat> mentioned, that, that they're able to hide information. Um and if they're able to hide the the leaders certain scandals, then that's that will only seek to strengthen that leader's position, that party's position. Uh, and now, you know, taking that idea of making Germany stronger and the leader stronger, throughout the 1930s, Hitler was able to negotiate Germany into a position of international strength. And this can be through a variety of different factors and actors. But how was he able to achieve this? Was it through his own skill or was it through the weakness of different bodies, say uh, Neville Chamberlain or the League of Nations. Yes, well, it was a combination, of course. Um, but <clears throat> it was it was primarily. I mean, he had, even though he was very lucky with these national events that happened around him, he did have um, did have skills of his own. Of course, his greatest skill was, as, we, as I've said earlier, was his powers of oratory. Anything he made a speech seemed to win over. His, his, his audience, but he had lots of other, um, he had lots of other skills. Uh, you might say uh, he, he was certainly very self-opinionated, self-confident, arrogant. Uh, he was he was passionate um, towards other people, uh, and so he, he he had he had many traits rather than qualities, um, and he yes he used them. Uh, he used them as soon as he had the power of a dictator. Um, he, by this time, remember, it's a long time that he had this run of luck. And he, by this time, he was he believed, he could see that he was lucky. And he then became what you might call a, an addicted gambler almost, uh, he, who believes that they're, they're, they're going to win everything. Um, and, and that was what, and that, that did, that confidence. Extreme confidence it carried him a long, long way. Um, somehow or another, uh, he 
understood that if he demanded something, said he was going to do something and did it, he seemed to be able to stop him. Which is, you know, a skill in its own. For example, uh, immediately, he had, I mean, as Chancellor, he had obviously been talking a lot about what he was going to be doing. Now he was Chancellor and dictator. He, he set about immediately carrying them out. And we have to remember is that Germany was under this huge um, pressure from, from the Treaty of Versailles, which at the end of the war uh, imposed huge financial reparations uh, on the German nation. So Germany, already poor, uh, was having to pay out vast sums of money to the victors of the First War. Um, which might sound fair, if, since they caused a lot of damage, but the thing was, it meant that Germany was kept poor, as they were giving away so much of their whatever income they made. The other thing that was restricted was, by the Treaty of Versailles, uh, with the size of the armed forces. Germany was not allowed to have proper-sized armed forces. Um, but I think the third thing was, was, probably, was probably the most important, and that was the, the, the Treaty of Versailles made Germany accept or confess or agree that they had started the war. Well, they did. But <laughs> the, what that did was it then put all the blame onto Germany and therefore onto the German people. And of course, at the end of it, they had to surrender. They had to admit defeat. What this created in Germany was a general, a wide feeling of shame. And, and Hitler tapped into that perfectly. That's really politically what had made him so popular because of those policies. And he had promised that he would solve all of those things. And so the first thing that he, more or less the first thing that he did, um, that after the war, um, the Americans had formed what was known as the League of Nations, which was really kind of a forerunner to the United Nations today. And everybody was, all countries were members. All countries were members and promised these peaceful futures. But Hitler stepped in and he announced at a meeting of the League of Nations in front of all of these nations, totally boldly without any hesitation, he announced that um, one, Germany was going to leave the League of Nations, why we're away. And the other thing is, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get any more money from us. You're not going to get any more reparations. Well, you can imagine how popular that was in Germany, very popular. And they saw this. This is the strong leader we've been waiting for. So that, that's how he, that was interpreted. Uh, that added to his prestige, added to his sense of power, uh, and also added to his own self-belief. So that wasn't strong enough. So he used that um, from, from, from then on, for the, over the next few years, uh, to rebuild rebuild the armed forces to his economy set out what was called a four-year plan. plan. But what it was, was spend money rebuilding forces, building weapons, and suddenly unemployment dropped. Um, 
people had money in their pocket. Armed forces were being, were being built up. Weapons were being built. Even the Air Force was being, was being rebuilt. Now, all of this was against the rules, against the Treaty of Versailles. So, so what in earth were all the other countries doing letting him please himself? Well, he, could, he just couldn't believe it. Well, he did believe it. He was astonished that that was he was getting to do anything that he wanted. Even, even, uh, even last Monday, you know, or even Monday, you may have, you may have heard uh, of, of the night of the long knives. Well, this was just, just a year into his power. Um, and he, the, I had already mentioned them earlier to you, the, the SA, the brown shirts. By this time, they were a massive paramilitary uh, army, really. Um, and the leader of it was Ernst Rom, uh, who had done a terrific job for Hitler, for the SA, in creating this large military power. Um, and um, trouble was, uh, Hitler now was looking over his shoulder and uh, whispers from, from, from his secret police were that Rom was maybe getting a bit too big for his boots. He maybe was going to be a threat to Hitler, because Hitler really wanted now to take control of the SA himself. Um, so what did he do? He arranged with a few of his SS guards uh, to visit from who was having the away in a hotel by the lake. By the way, Rom was a homosexual, um, and he was to have some friends with him. Uh, anyway, he, Hitler, with a gun in his hand and his SS, his SS um, bodyguards, entered the hotel and promptly shot several uh, of the Fromm's fellows and threw Rom in prison uh, and handed him a gun and gave him the option to shoot himself. Incidentally, Rom didn't shoot himself and an officer went in instead. But that and actually, out of that, hundreds of other people were shot because there was a list. I think this is indicative of, of the, the style of rule of the Nazis. And before Hitler went to over the SA, he made, he got, he made a, a list of people uh, who he saw as being um, potential trouble or just a nuisance. And he turned it with 400 people were killed, murdered, during that day, which is now known as the Night of the Long Nights. Perhaps the most astonishing outcome of it was he declared what he had done to Parliament, to the people, and he said that he was clearing out the rot, that, uh, that he, had, he had defeated an attempted coup. And instead of making him incriminating himself as, as a murderer. It's made him more popular. He was seen as even more powerful, even more important. A man who could get things done, a man who could get Germany on the right road. You've definitely really shown how Hitler was able to build that power abroad and internationally by you know, standing up to the Treaty of Versailles, <clears throat> which people hated so much, and, and standing up to the League of Nations but also consolidating that control at home, which is so, so important for for dictators 
as well. Now, a lot, a lot of this for Hitler would have been impossible, almost impossible, without his, as you call them in your book, his inner circle, his henchmen. So how did how did Hitler get lucky? And we've mentioned a few of them already, but how did he get lucky with his henchmen? Well, he was very lucky with his henchmen. I know that sounded most of a sick thing to say in a way, because his henchmen was were, were just as bad something and some of them worse even as possible than Hitler himself. But this was the thing. Hitler didn't put an advert in the paper of henchmen coming to see me. People turned up. People appeared. Uh, the right people emerged very quickly in front of him uh, with the right skills for the right jobs that they ended up doing. And it's astonishing. Uh, but uh, and you wonder where they came from. But an example, for example, uh, when he was in court before he went to jail, um, and this was another example, actually, also of his win over the most unlikely audience. Um, he pleaded guilty to Munich March, um, and he should have been found guilty of treason, locked up forever, possibly even executed. But instead, he announced himself to be doing it for the best of reasons, and he had a long speech uh, as to why it was. And the judge actually said, yeah, he's quite a decent chap, this Hitler. You imagine the judge, judge saying that. But all of his speeches were reported, and they were recorded in national newspapers. And this all was added to, while he was in jail at this time, was added to his, his fame. Um, and one person far away in Berlin was reading the report and was very impressed with what he read. His name was Joseph Goebbels. So Joseph Goebbels, impressed by the speeches, determined himself, that he would go and offer his services uh, to, to Hitler. And as it turned out, um, Goebbels was an incredibly talented person. You know, he, he really was very talented uh, at what we say today, media stuff, uh, propaganda, but also um, electioneering ideas all came from it really, uh, another argument is that Hitler wouldn't have been successful without Goebbels at his side. Because like every politician, you have to have an image. You've got to look right. You've got to sound right. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And Goebbels actually, um, you might say he was, he was okay, because of technology, flights and airplanes, he was the first to utilize this idea of flying around the country um, and, and, and dropping in. So it was like someone from heaven dropped down into your, into your patch of land, outstepped the Messiah, gave a wonderful speech, um, and then everybody voted. And then you would fly up again to the next place. Uh, this, this was entirely Goebbels creation. He called it Hitler over German. Very creative. So this is, that's just one example of Goebbels. I mean, another person that we that we know quite well, usually, is Hermann Göring. Uh, again, Hermann Göring, uh, who had been a World War One flying ace, um, was a bit of a sort of aristocrat. His, his father was, um, 
And so he, he mixed with them that sort of level of society. Uh, and he threw himself into service for Hitler. Now, Hitler should have been rejected, should have rejected. Goebbels was everything Hitler was against. You know, he, he liked, he was rich, he liked the good life. Uh, he was interested in all sorts of things. He, he liked cigars, good wine, good food. The good life, in other words. Uh, Hitler, of course, was just, I don't know if, if you know, but Hitler was actually teetotal. And he didn't smoke. In fact, he more or less banned smoke. He didn't like smoke at all. You know, some, some, as we mentioned, he got very lucky with bringing Goebbels and Goering into his, his inner circle and, and keeping them close to him to, oh. to help him get through several issues. You know, some of these henchmen, um, such as Albert Speer, were involved in plots against Hitler uh, and, and plots on Hitler's life. So how was Hitler able to survive some of these attempts on his life? Right, Jackson, if I can, I, I just want to uh, sort of change that a little bit because, um, you know, his henchmen, his henchmen didn't, uh, didn't uh, try to take, take his life. It, it was in their interest for him to be successful because the more successful he was, the more successful they were. So they didn't want rid of him. Um, the, the, it, is, it is true to say that right at the very end of the war, Albert Speer claimed that he, Considered, uh, considered try, trying to get rid of Hitler. But that, that was really on the very, very last few years before. Uh, when you're talking about, you're talking about assassination attempts, what maybe I think was his generals. It was, it was quite a lot of his generals wanted rid of because they knew uh, that they were fighting a losing battle with him at, at the head. So there were many occasions. In fact, perhaps, you know, uh, the luckiest Hitler was, was the amount of time that he dodged, dodged the assassins. Now, your your first half of your book, which is incredibly interesting, we've just spoken about now, all about luck. I would yeah. like to, I'd like to ask you, what are your favourite examples of luck that Hitler encountered? Well, if you could describe them as favourite uh, from the point <laughs> of view of... <laughs> I see. Uh, some of the most remarkable, certainly. Uh, well, I'd have to go back to the First War, one case, uh, certainly uh, his time in, in, in the First War. He was four years on the front line, you know, four years on the front line. Uh, his job was uh, a, a, a farmer, which really was just a, a messenger, um, sometimes, on a, sometimes on a bike, sometimes on foot. But he was running from place to place in the, in, on the front, between trenches, with messages uh, between one officer and another commanding officer. So you can imagine, goes without saying, that it's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Um, and and, and with several examples, but one day, for example, he had just come out of headquarters, where incidentally, uh, the officer who had, had just sent a recommendation uh, for, uh, for Hitler to be to be given the Iron Cross. And actually, Hitler was given the Iron Cross twice, as well as other medals. So one thing that we, we can be pretty sure with Hitler, is he certainly wasn't a coward. <laughs> and he, he 
treated warfare, you know, disdain, really, which is quite remarkable. Having, as I said, spent four years here, but he just had come out of the headquarters when headquarters was hit by uh, either a bomber or an artillery shell, blew up. Everybody in it was killed, and he had just left the place. Um, but that was just one of the examples. I mean, the other thing, for example, the regiment that he's a member of the 16th Bavarian Regiment, um, he fought, he was involved in every main battle in the First War. I'm talking about Ypres, uh, Passchendaele, and infamous Somme. He was there at every battle. Um, in, 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 at Ypres, the Battle of Ypres, I think it was uh, six, 1,600 or more, 3,000, sorry, I think it was 3,000 in his particular regiment. In the beginning of the battle, it was 600 at the end. He was one of them. Well, that's pretty slim odds. Quite amazing. And as I say, even coming through the Somme, where I think 40,000 people, allies, I to say, were killed on the first day. I mean, he came through all of that. Um, and perhaps, <laughs> the, I love the story uh, about Henry Tandy, a British soldier, uh, a British soldier, he was a sniper, um, was just looking out, uh, scanning the trenches. And this chap emerged from the, the trenches. He seemed to be injured. And lo and behold, turns out, this is a verified story, it was Hitler. Uh, but Tandy, he, he thought, you know what? He said, I can't actually shoot a wounded soldier. So he just let him go. And Hitler knew, Hitler looked over, he saw the sniper, he looked at him, and he actually waved and acknowledged the fact that he hadn't shot him because Hitler knew he. And Hitler verified the story, actually, because when Chamberlain went to to meet him at his Berghof um, down by Salzburg. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the main room above the fireplace was this huge painting of a German soldier uh, coming out of the trenches and a British uh, sniper uh, pointing a rifle at him. And, uh, and, and um, Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain, asked Hitler, well, what, why, why have you got a picture of a British soldier? Hitler said, that man saved my life. And uh, he said, would you, you know, would you t go and tell him thank you? Astonishing, yeah. Chamberlain said that he would, and he did. And and the man's name was Henry Tandy. I mean, that's astonishing. Hitler could have been taken out so many times during the First War. So I think from luck, I don't think you can get much luckier than Hitler in the First War. Other than that, of course, or there were at least 40 assassination attempts over the years. Of those, there were many famous ones. I could sit here all day telling you about them, but I know I can't. But do watch the movie Valkyrie. It is a recreation of the 20th July 1944 assassination attempt. Um, and I can assure you, it's about as accurate a film as you'll see just how lucky those those stories during the first world war really demonstrate like demonstrate just how lucky 
Hitler was and and you can understand how he believed that he was he was being going down this path that providence had set for him so you can you can really see that and those stories from the world war one uh really demonstrate that now the first half of your book as we just mentioned was all about luck and the second half of your book and the second half of your title as well is all about hitler's mistakes yes um and when when do you think this luck this providence begins to to run out for hitler it's very clear, actually. It is actually it's, it's not difficult to actually pinpoint uh, when the changes really happened. Um, it, it was in, in 1941. Uh, at that point, he, he, Hitler ruled all of Europe, except for Britain, and very nearly. Remember, Britain had been, the British Army had been expelled at Dunkirk. So uh, Hitler was at his greatest peak of military success. This was when um, and it's little wonder that he thought uh, that this was the moment to invade Russia. Now he had he was betraying Russia because he already had made a deal with the, with Stalin and the Russian government uh, to, to to conquer and, and, and share Poland. Uh, but that didn't stop him. No, not at all. As far as he was concerned, and he'd said this many years before in Mein Kampf, made it quite clear. His main aim, actually, was going to be to conquer Russia uh, because he wanted to give the German people Liebenstein. I mean, obviously, today, Ukraine is a very well-known country uh, and it's a very rich, arable country. Uh, Hitler saw all of that as being justifiably part of, of Germany. So he always had a plan uh, to invade Russia, um, but he just wasn't sure when it was going to happen exactly. But now he was at the peak of conquering whole of Europe. He felt this was this was the time. And on paper, he would say, he could say, and theoretically anyway, oh, yeah, if he was going to do it, this was a good time to do it. Hitler had over three million soldiers lined up into three army groups. Um, he had thousands of tanks, thousands of aircraft, and he had a million horses. We never think of that, do we? We just think it's all tanks. I mean, it was a colossal. I'm just trying to give you that. If, if, if you could have seen it from space, you would have seen it, the, the army. It was quite astonishing. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm getting to the point here that, that, that you asked about mistakes because you can see the euphoria, the belief was at this point, point in time. Uh, he was the lucky gambler who had never, never lost. Uh, and... and, and uh, he called it Operation Barbarossa. Um, and they made great progress. They, they did sweep across uh, the Russian plains, across Ukraine, across it. Uh, one army group went north, just very central group headed for Moscow, and the third group went south towards the Caucasus and the, the oil fields. Um, this was a very sensible plan. You know, it's absolutely, you couldn't really fall back the strategy at this point in time. However, it was a bit late. Uh, it was, it was, it was uh, June, but it was a bit late uh, from the Russian point of view. Because uh, by the time we got to Moscow, it was winter. Winter comes quickly, as Napoleon found out 100 years before. And Hitler was aware of, of Napoleon. 
your hurting. Um, but anyway, when you got to by the time you got to Moscow, before he got to Moscow, he interfered. He interfered. He split his armies. He took away part of the central army. He decided Moscow wasn't going to be a priority. Yes, so this is his first mistake. Um, because he sacked his head of the army, and he said, only person good enough, the only person that knows what needs done is myself. He said, anybody, anybody commander of an army, and I am going to be the commander of the army. Well, you can't get much more arrogant than that, but of course he had title whispering in his ear that he's the greatest commander at the time, so perfectly reasonable. He might, he might believe that. So he takes over as the actual field commander. Now, there's a big difference from him being the dictator of certain broad plans to becoming the actual uh, general, overall in charge, commander-in-chief. Was. He was actually started taking tactical decisions. That's when it all started going wrong. Because you see, Hitler's experience of war is certainly front-line trenches. Absolutely nothing about what we described as officer training, uh, about battle strategy. So he never understood any of that. And that's what came to haunt him. Because later on in the book, I, I, there's a whole episode, a whole, um, whole chapter uh, called Verstungen. Um, and, you know, this is, I don't see this word used a lot in history books, but I'm happy to say that this was the big, one of the, one of the great big mistakes Hitler made. But it wasn't one mistake. Verstungen is the word, actually, just a very, very brief it's a German word for castle or, or, or a, a defended location. Um, and Hitler's, again, this is where his ideology betrayed him every time. He, he knew nothing about military tactics, but he believed in his ideology. And ideologically, in history, German people had defended themselves by building a castle and defending the castle. Uh, and until the enemy went away. Uh, yeah, of course you can do that when the enemy have got bows and arrows, not when the enemy have got the guns as big as the Russians have. Uh, so th th this this was part of his, well, his thoughts of military tactics. They weren't military tactics at all, they were just, just ideological misconceptions. And so um, when he got to Moscow, he split his army, took over control, and from that moment on, some people think it's Stalingrad, but actually it's for Stalingrad. From that moment on, when he didn't take Moscow, he makes one military mistake after another. And every one of them, and he, he cannot get away with it. Up until then, the decisions were, tactical decisions were made by his generals and field marshals, so Hitler. In the end, Hitler would claim credit for it. Uh, it was his generals that were doing it. What he couldn't do now was, because he was commander-in-chief, the German word for it was Feldherr. Okay. Feldherr. just means the overall commander. Now he was Feldherr. He could claim all victories, if there were any. But 
what he couldn't do was he couldn't deny fault. And he now became cause a decision maker of all the mistakes Germany made from that moment on. And there's a lot of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see where history repeats itself, as you mentioned with Napoleon, where Hitler's mistake <clears throat> and, and where his luck begins to run out is very similar to where Napoleon starts to, his luck starts to run out and his mistakes start to come to the fray. And it's very interesting yeah. that you, you bring in ideology uh, with Festungen. Um, you know, Hitler's ideology was the backbone of his regime. But in your work, you you present Hitler's ideological rigor as a mistake. Could you break this down for us? Yes. Well, you see, ideology it's 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 um it's it's a it's completely dominated his point of view on absolutely everything. Yeah. In many ways, his speeches were probably um, were probably so convincing because they were from his from his heart, really. He, he founded this uh, ideology of superiority. The German race, the Aryan race, as it's called, um, was a superior race. Um, it was different from everybody else. Uh, and that, 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 that all other uh, groupings in, in society that weren't white and weren't German were Untermensch, as it's one German word, which really just means underclasses, under. Uh, and he, he applied this simply. I mean, it was a, it's a simple idea. Uh, you just point to anybody else, don't point, uh, and say that they're much uh, inferior. Uh, and better than that is you are, you are, you are superior. Um, and because this, so this added to the arrogance belief of the, of the German forces in many ways, you know. So his ideology was carried through. Um, a good, uh, and a good example of his ignorant, and I mean ignorant, part of, of his ideology uh, was uh, at the same time uh, as, as he took over as commander-in-chief. And this was the other moment uh, that, that sealed, if you like, his fate uh, and, and, and his list of mistakes, was that um, at almost the same time, uh, Japan... Japanese Empire, as they call themselves, were mad enough to um, attack the United States of America uh, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, we all know, have heard of Pearl Harbor, uh, 7th of December. Now, when Hitler got news of it, which is more or less the same night, he was delighted. He was absolutely ecstatic. Couldn't believe it. That's exactly what, because one of the fears he had, was conscious of, was that America might actually join in the war. Okay, he knew they were sending stuff, but, but he was fearful that Americans would actually join in. Uh, so what does he do? He declares war on America. I mean, you could not make that up. You really did declare war on the United States. And you, you, well, why? Well, you see, this is what his ideology was. Because he had a concept in his mind of America. Oh, these were all 
first, first of all, either Americans were either Jews or they were black Africans. You know, from, from a, like a black Africans. Anyways. As far as he was concerned, that was it. There was, yeah. And they were very communist. A lot of it seems ridiculous for a capitalist country. But this, is, this, was, this is what ideology does and did to him. It completely blindsided him. He believed in this simplistic description. I mean, he said, uh, just a little quote here, for example. He actually said this. He said, he, he was explaining to his, his um, adjutant, oh, I think it was his adjutant, as to, as to why America was not going to be a problem. Because he said, the United States of America is a green country. It's a mongrel nation. It's got strong ties to the Jews, and it's rotten with Jews and blacks. That, that, that sums up exactly what Hitler thought of America. Now, the fact that America could produce more replacement planes in one day, Germany could in months, never, yeah, never crossed his mind. Never crossed his mind. So that's, that's a kind of fatal mistake. It's ideology. It's ideology. And it's interesting how his ideology not only prevented the development of his regime and his military policy, but also allowed him to, or facilitated his underestimation of the US and their power and their role in in the world and, and militarily as well. Now, there's, there's one area of the German military which Hitler didn't seem to value as much during World War II, and that is the German Navy. Why does Hitler's undervaluing of the German Navy represent a, a failure of his? Well, you're right. Uh, the short answer to that is he was a, he was a World War I soldier in the trenches. Uh, ships meant nothing to him. He had no affinity um, for the sea or for, or for ships or for the Navy, for that matter. So when he took when he took the uh, uh, World power as, as the Führer, um, and and he had this plan to expand military forces. Uh, he thought, in again in World War One mentality, he thought that the that the, the, the British Navy uh, appeared to be huge uh, and unbeatable, uh, and certainly had, had absolutely had been, um, and he thought that. Because they had built in the first war large ships, huge, huge battleships, and, and there was really only one big battle, Jutland, of course. Um, he, but he thought that all the Navy needed was the most modern, best te technology, biggest possible battleships, and that's that's, that's fine. So, is the allocation of funds to the Navy was aimed only at building capital ships. Uh, he had no interest in it uh, whatsoever uh, in terms of its military use. I mean, after all, Germany, yes, it, it does have access uh, to sea, but it, um, it's unlike Britain, of course, which, of course, is island. That's, that's why our history, really, our history, British history, is made and determined because we were an island, because we had a navy. Where the empire came. Anyway, that's another matter. 
But uh, so that's where that's where his, his his funds went to, and it never really trust me. Every time the his head of the time um, got him to come along and look at the latest ship, Hitler was impressed. This is bigger than the last one. Yeah. It had more guns in it than the last one. Uh, was, as far as he was concerned, this is that was, that was going to teach the British Navy when time came. However, uh, it was a huge mistake. 1935, uh, and this, this I'll never understand, Britain agreed to let Germany rebuild its navy. Worse than that is it, it allowed it to build the navy up to a certain size, and that included, it said, uh, half the number of U-boats that Britain had. Britain never had that many U-boats anyway, uh, submarines anyway. But however, uh, but here was a great opportunity to jump ahead a little bit. I think you were going to ask me about my favourite mistake. This is it. This is it. This is the one of two. Uh, and this would happen before Hitler could have, I believe, absolutely, could have won the war before it started. And he could have won the war before it started if he had spent most of the money Instead of building big ships that were always going to be useless, by the way, um, you've probably heard of some of them. Bismarck, Scharnhorst, <clears throat> the brothers, Graf Spee, these were fantastic. State-of-the-art, beautiful, big ships. Where did they go during the war? Well, they hid in a fjord somewhere in Norway. They couldn't come out to sea. Because he was afraid that if they came out, they would get sunk. <laughs> so instead of that, they just stayed in, in port. And they were still sunk. Because the RAF found where they were. And uh, all of these great ships were actually sunk in, in the end. Anyway, but to get back to the point, what you should have been rebuilding were U-boats. And with all that steel and all that money that you used, you could have built hundreds Instead, when the war started, he had about 30 geo boats. Do you know how big the Atlantic Ocean is? Quite big. That's yeah, a... yeah, exactly, yeah. So, do you imagine 30 U-boats in the Atlantic? You know, it's a fly on a very, very large hole. If he'd had, if he if he'd had several hundred boats before he declared war, he could have totally blockaded Britain. Now, if, if, he, if he had even looked at the history of his own country, and if he had taken ideology or his, his racist bias out of the question, he would have realised Germany actually surrendered, not because they were defeated in the trenches, but because they were blockaded by the British Navy. They were blockaded. And the people that suffer there are the civilians and the government. They were the ones that surrendered. That was why they surrendered. And that's maybe slightly simplistic, but it was the overriding, overriding factor. Now, if he had noticed that properly, he could have done the same to Britain. And I have no doubt whatsoever. And indeed, Churchill 
himself said in his own history, said that the only, the only, that's a big word, the only thing that ever frightened me in the Second War was the U-boats. If you think about it, Churchill can say that. Um, then I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a strong backing for my my. You watch could have won the war for Hitler. So you can't get a bigger mistake than that. Yeah, I think I think that's a great example. And and even like you said, for, for Churchill to be afraid of that and to and for Hitler to not recognise Germany's own failings from World War One, it really I can really support that as that being your favourite mistake that Hitler yeah. made. Um it's certainly one of mine that you, you wrote down in your book, which I th- I thought was a fascinating read. Now, a final fun question, as we do for all our guests here on the History of Jackson podcast. But well, you've you've worked and and competed in many fields, uh, and you've, yeah. you've certainly developed many skills in those fields. Yeah. Yeah. What skills have you developed that you've been able to transfer across to your career as a historian? Yeah, well, that, that, I mean that's quite a question because I mean most of my life, certainly thirty years of it, before I was teaching. Um, I was in business uh, and, you know, a variety of businesses, which you know, all of which I actually, you know, started up from from scratch uh, and developed. And uh, uh, that that takes a lot of determination. It really does. Uh, I mean, it obviously takes vision. Uh, you know, you have to see your objective very clearly. Um, so I'm sharing some, I'm sharing some uh, <laughs> factors with Hitler here, uh, but hopefully not many. Uh, but certainly the, the, the experience in business uh, is that there are ups and downs. Uh, you have to be able to deal with them. You have to be resilient. And you have to be determined. And I think it's, a, it's actually, it might be amusing to, to say, you need all of those things to be a teacher as well. <laughs> so uh, turning to becoming a history teacher in later life, uh, all of I think all of that experience was, was, was very valuable. Yeah, have, having been in a classroom myself, those those skills are definitely skills you hundred percent need in a in a history classroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, now, if our Hitlers want, or if our Hitlers, I'll rephrase that question. <laughs> if our listeners want to go away and learn yeah, more sorry. about Hitler, Nazi Germany. What can they go away uh, and read and listen to? Right. Well, it's an open question, and I've just got to answer. Well, the very first book you have to read is Lucky Hitler's Big Mistakes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an open goal, that one. Um, it, which, because it does actually, if I just say very, very briefly here, the book actually covers the whole war. Well, it covers pre-war and the whole war right to the very end uh, of, of Hitler. So in a sense, it's a it's a history of the Second World War. It's just written in a in a different um, different different emphasis. But um, I, then I, I, for deeper, perhaps a deeper look at uh, at the war, I would obviously recommend um, Andrew Roberts' range of he's, he's got several books which are which are well worth looking at. Um, the, one of them is called The Storm of War, which is really a history of the Second War. Masters and Commanders, which go into much more detail about the leaders of the war. And really his definitive book, for which he's been lots of awards, is Churchill Walking with 
Justin. So, you know, you can stick to that, but that's on, in, my, in the back of my book, I've listed 15 further recommendations, um, which is a, a long list. I'm not going to read that in the book of the of type of history books that, that I would personally um, recommend. I find them all informative, very readable, um, uh, yeah, and, and well worth um, reading an hour before you go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... um, but one last thing, I must add that um, we shouldn't underestimate, the, some people be a wee bit sniffy about this, but do not in- underestimate the value of YouTube. Sorry to have to advertise YouTube. Yeah. Uh, the amount of World War II material available on YouTube is absolutely staggering. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of good stuff can be, can be found. Documentaries, um, other resources are all and it's free. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good way to build up your knowledge and to touch into different areas to see what, what you'd like to read. Yeah, and and a free free is always amazing, isn't it? So it's always amazing. Yeah, it's And of course, our readers are going to want to go away and grab a copy of your book. Where mm-hmm. can they grab your book? Uh, well, they can uh, come onto my website um, if, they, if they care to. Uh, it's very very easy to remember. It's called www.luckyhitler.com. Uh, or go into any social media and just type in hashtag Lucky Hitler, and that should take them to a variety of places. Um, of course, it's available in, in all the bookshops. Um, if they don't have it, if they, if they don't have it in stock, they can easily order it. Uh, but many are now stocking it. I'm glad to say. Um, and where else can you find it? That's, that's all the places, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, I'll make sure there's a copy, uh, a link that heads, heads uh, I'll mm-hmm. make sure that there's a link that takes you to buy a copy of the book in the description below and a link to Thank your you. website. And if our readers, our listeners and mm-hmm. potential readers want to go away and actually have a conversation with you, where can they find you? Well, again, um, it's quite straightforward. If they do. If they want to email me on anything, just paul at luckyhitler.com. Fantastic. Now, I'll make sure all of those are in the description below. Thank you very much for coming on, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jackson. I've enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much. 